Hello, and welcome to The Daily Weekly. I'm Jennifer Muir, here with Maya Goldman and Colin Beresford. Thanks for tuning in. This week, Maya will be interviewing Ian Robinson, the president of the Lecturer's Employee Organization, about the events of the past couple weeks surrounding Leo and their bargaining with the university. Then, Colin will talk to Daily Staff reporter Zaina Syed about students' disappointment with the mandatory race and ethnicity requirement that the courses are not living up to expectations. Now, here's Maya. Thanks, Jen. The Lecturer's Employee Union, known as LEO, decided not to go on strike this Monday and Tuesday after a long weekend of bargaining with the university. LEO has been bargaining with the university for higher starting wages and increased job security, among other things, since October. They announced last week that they would strike if significant bargaining progress was not made by Sunday evening. I'm here today with Ian Robinson, a lecturer for in the sociology department in residential college and also the president of LEO. So hi, Ian. Can you talk a little bit about why the union decided that they weren't going to strike this week? Hi, Maya. Yeah, sure. Um, as you, as your introduction indicated, we had said all along that if significant progress was made, which doesn't mean sufficient progress, significant, uh, that we would call off the strike. And we do feel that significant progress was made. It was made in the 11th hour. It really was until Saturday, the one day before the final day of bargaining, where we had to make a decision that we even saw anything from the administration on what we've been calling equity, which is uh, uh, b- raising the base rates of longer-serving lectures to reflect the fact that they've been working for exploitative uh, compensation for a long time, but they did come up with that finally. They also raised the minimum significantly in the, that last 24 hours over what they had been, so we felt that that was sufficient to call off the strike, even though it's far from adequate to actually settle and sign a final agreement. Mm-hmm. And what is bargaining like? What is that setup like? Bargaining is in a lot of the time very boring, and then it's <laughs> punctuated by moments of extreme tension and you know uh, anger or happiness. It's a it's a roller coaster emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of boredom in between. Mm-hmm. And so the your current contract expires on April twentieth, and that's getting very close. Right. Um, so what happens if the contract contract expires before a new one is agreed upon is you know is that even a possibility oh it's it certainly is a possibility it has happened quite frequently in past rounds this is our fifth round of negotiations and in in at least two if not all three of the ones after our very first we did go beyond that deadline ended up bargaining well into the summer um and the reason it's not particularly traumatic or uh, upsetting to do that is that the the contract says that if it expires, uh, then the contract will continue unless one of the parties uh, wishes it to end and gives 30 days notice to that effect. So in those earlier cases, neither of us, neither the administration nor Leo did that. And so it just carried on as as though it hadn't expired. Mm -hmm. So I think the real deadline is not so much April 20th as April, as the end of term, however that's defined, I think we could probably define it as the end of April. At which point, Leo is not, our Constitution says we can't sign a tentative agreement, um, and that means we can't submit anything to our membership, which means we won't really have an agreement until we come back in the fall. That doesn't mean we can't do some negotiating over the summer, but it means that negotiating won't result in a, in a signed contract that the members have been presented with and have decided to ratify by a secret ballot vote. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about previous negotiations. Can you talk about Leo's history and how you've gotten to this point? 
Sure. Well, Leo was formed in 2003, and we negotiated our first collective agreement in 2004. That time we did have a one-day strike, and that made quite a significant difference uh, in the uh, what the administration was willing to do. In, and that first contract created longer-term contracts. It created a presumption of renewal, which is a certain limited but real and important form of job security for people who had passed a major review after mm-hmm. three or four years. It raised salaries for some, for example, foreign language instructors full-time in Flint and Dearborn were making around uh, $17,000 back in that time. And that was the lowest paid full-time staff around. I mean, uh, janitors had a union, a good union AFSME, and they were paid well above that. So they went up to something like 24000 or something, which is still you know, a pretty low number, but think about what percentage increase that represented from that for them. So we made some major gains for everybody, but especially for the worst off, lowest paid groups, um, and those were most concentrated in Flint and Dearborn. Mm-hmm. After that, we made much smaller gains. That's why, you know, we went all the way from uh, that first contract. Uh, 14 years later, the minimums had only increased by 11% uh, at a time when tuition on average had increased by 90%. So, you know, what that told us, even though the university was in good fiscal shape all that time, was probably running surpluses, maybe not as big as the 500 million plus surpluses it's been running in the last two years, but always uh, surpluses. It could easily have raised uh, our salaries uh, in those intervening years much more than it did. But it, but really what we've learned from our bargaining with the University of Michigan is they don't raise them any more than we have the power to make them raise them. It's sad to say that there's not a sufficient moral kind of drive on the part of the administration to do the right thing in the absence of power on our part, but simply that is the empirical reality. That is what we've learned. And so the reason we did so much better this time, the reason that that offer that they put on the table on Sunday night raised the men's more than the other four contracts had put together was that we had built with our allies and students were a key, key part of that, much more power than we had before. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about what ally support has meant to the union throughout this process? There's been a pretty big showing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the students are the heart of it. I mean, they're the ones that we have the strongest relationships with. It's the students that have some lecture or lectures in their history at University of Michigan that helped them, that made them uh, feel like they actually belonged here and that they counted and that they could do things that they weren't so sure that they could do. Those are the kind of relationships that generate a huge amount of loyalty and caring on the part of the students, and, and it's in both directions. That kind of feeling uh, is, is, I think, what we were able to kind of uh, build upon. And so we had, by the time uh, of Sunday night, we had I don't know, we had uh, at least 2,000 picket shifts signed up and probably more. I don't think we got them all of them entered into our database because they were just kept flowing in. People could do it online, and they just kept registering online to do it. And, you know, at least half of those were students. So we would, if we'd had that strike, we would have been out there, and there would have been at least one student, maybe more than one, for every lecture on the picket lines. And that, that is tremendous from the point of view of our members because they really feel validated by that, the people that they worry most about in terms of having a strike are the students and the possible impacts of the strike on them. So to know that their students are behind them and with them and think this is necessary, even though it does cause some temporary disruption, is just like it's what our members need, you know, to be willing to go forward on large numbers and do this. Yeah. Do what sure. it takes to get the, to get to a just outcome. Mm-hmm. And 
Can we can you talk a little bit more about what it's been like to lead a union like this um, through this whole process? Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been uh, it's been a trip. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like I've it. learned so much. It's been a growth experience for me. It's been very exciting in this last two years, though, having been there from the beginning and helped to organize Leo way back uh, 15 years ago before even our first contract. I've never seen the as many union members, uh, as many new people. Um, coming out and being getting actively involved, a whole new generation of leadership has emerged in this next in this last year that now I feel extremely confident will take Leo to newer heights after the founding generation of which I'm a member retires mm -hmm. from Leo leadership. I'm not <laughs> saying I'm leaving the university quite this soon, but you know, so it's been extremely exciting and rewarding to see. And then and then the outreach work we've done. We've done more systematically. Some of that is on us, but we never know, well, what kind of reaction will we get until we do it? And the reaction has been just overwhelming and extremely gratifying to see so many students and to see the effect that has on our members, to know that they have those students, to see tenure track faculty signing up as allies, uh, to see alumni starting to make more of an appearance. We're really going to push further on that uh, going forward because they're a huge resource, of course. So yeah, it, it's really been terrific, and and uh, I've learned as a leader that you know the best way to proceed with a group of people like our lectures is learn how to delegate, learn how to create enough space for everybody to step forward with their own particular excellences and passions. Because we got an amazing group of people that form the membership of Leo, and if they're allowed to do what they wa can do and want to do without too much uh, you know uh, getting in the way of the leadership, they will do it and they will run with it, and it'll be terrific. Yeah, and you're also a teacher throughout all of this. All of you guys True. are by nature, right? So <laughs> That's right. what has it been like to be teaching throughout this process? It's been challenging. I mean, for a lot of our members who teach a full load, really, really challenging. I've had it a little bit easier because I'm a part, a part of my position as a research scientist, so that I have less teaching for that reason. And also, when I became the president of LEO, that reduced my course load by one each term. So I'm only teaching one course this term. Many of our others that are very active and doing a, a heck of a lot of work are teaching three courses still. My one course was on the subject of social theory and how it can be used for social change. So I was actually able to use the work we were doing as an ongoing case study example and incorporate updates on Leo and different aspects of what we're doing and why into the course in ways that I hope, we'll see when the student evaluations come in, but I'm hopeful and I based on what I've feedback I've got so far, I think the students found that pretty interesting to have a kind of real life example of how social change works on a microcosm in an environment that they actually were quite familiar with, but also didn't, there were a lot of things they didn't know about it. Like just how much are these lectures being paid? And you know, how does the power structure of the university work and who actually decides to pay them good wages or, or terrible wages? Yeah, yeah, that's all been, I think, very valuable learning for them. Definitely not something that students would know if they didn't hear about it. So. Right. Very interesting. And what is your, as you move forward throughout this, what is the ideal perfect world outcome of all this bargaining? Well, um, we, you know, I guess the ideal is that our, our, our members should be compensated based on their contributions, both to the mission of the university where undergraduate teaching is always said to be one of the two top two things, research and teaching. Um, I don't think it, it, it's always actually that way, uh, but so part of it would be to raise up undergraduate education to the priority that it really ought to be, and in the process, raise up lecturers who are contributing to that mission hugely 
to the kind of uh, compensation that they deserve based on the centrality of that mission and based on the amount of money that the students bring in through their tuition uh, and, the, and the amount of that teaching we do. So that would be ideal. Um, in this round, I don't know that we get all the way to that ideal, but I think one real important bottom line is we need to get every lecture out of poverty. There shouldn't be any full-time lectures or anybody who's being paid at a rate where if they were full-time, they would be below the poverty. And I don't mean the poverty line, the federal poverty line. That is so low. It's, it, it, it's, it, that is extreme poverty is what the federal poverty. I'm talking about the United Way's basic needs budget, which anyone can find if you just type in United Ways of Michigan and, and then ALICE, A-L-I-C-E is the acronym. They have calculated that. And here in Ann Arbor, that's about 60000 in uh, other and Flint and Dearborn, it's in the 50s. The cost of living is a little bit lower. It's a budget that's very stripped down. It does not include saving any money for your retirement. It does not include saving any money for your children's higher education. It just is, what does it take to get from month to month, to live from month to month, put a roof over your head, food on the table, clothing, transportation, and if you have children, uh, take care of them, either by childcare or by having one of the adults stay home and look after them. So that would be a key goal, get everybody out of poverty understood in that way on all three campuses. Um, a second one would be um, compensate those who've been long serving for the fact that all these years they've been doing it up to now, many, not all, but many of them have been paid substandard, really exploitative, as, as, uh, as uh, one of the regents said, as uh, Mark, Mark said on, 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 at the last regents meeting. Um, so get them to the point where they are compensated for that. That's the equity component of our ask. And the third piece is try to make sure that when you're doing the first two, you don't wind up with what we call compression, where people who have come here recently end up getting paid almost as much as people who've been here for a long time. That requires some fairly careful structuring of how the pay raises work. It's quite doable. It's another one of the reasons why we needed some time on Sunday night. We, we certainly wouldn't have signed given the numbers, but we also need to look at the structure so that we could calculate, is this going to generate a lot of compression? Are there big holes where people, even though some people are getting significant raises, there are others that are getting almost nothing? It turns out both of those things are true of the, of the formula that was offered. So we would want to solve those problems. Nobody should be left behind, um, and compression should be minimized. So how do you feel going forward, what, now that the, the leverage of a strike is gone what what power do you feel you have? Well, I would say we have two major sources of power between now and, say, the end of June. One of them is that the regents are really behind us. And, you know, they have said, Mark Bernstein said in his la at the last regents meeting, that we are being exploited and that has to end. The regents do have real power. And if they are able to wield that power on our behalf, that's a major source of leverage. The other major source, which can, which is is there, whether what it, regardless of what the regions are able to do, is uh, making visible what was previously invisible. A lot of our campaign has just been explaining to people, gathering the statistics, putting them in a readable form, and getting them out to our students, to tenure track faculty, honestly to the regions as well, because they did not necessarily know these details either. 
um, to alumni. And so we have found that as people learn uh, how things actually work, how this smooth, well-oiled machine that delivers all this education to people year after year actually works behind the scenes, they're surprised and usually appalled by, by the way it works. And so we, if we can, we can and we will continue to get that message out. Just to give you one example, uh, there's the Democratic Convention for the state happening this Sunday. We have got, we, we have asked for time, and I think we will get time to explain what's been happening and what the, where we are at this point and what needs to happen going forward to the entire convention. So, I mean, and then uh, later uh, the following week on Thursday is the convention of the entire American Federation of Teachers of Michigan, which we will do the same thing in. And, and on and on, we'll use our social media and all the other kinds of media that are available to get the word out. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. And it changes and builds huge support for us, changes the way people see the University of Michigan, changes how they feel about it. And that, uh, those changes uh, help us to build the power necessary to make the University of Michigan a place that we truly can be proud of, that really will be leaders in the best, instead of just mouthing those words and then treating us as uh, commodities. Thank you so much, Ian. We look forward to, to seeing where you guys end up with this. Thank you. At Noodles & Company, we don't think your freebies should end with the chopsticks. That's why we created Noodles Rewards, a program that helps you earn discounts, offers, and giveaways just for using the app. Are you craving one of our world-famous Macs or a classic like Japanese pan noodles or pasta fresca? Just order your favorites online or at the restaurant, then scan the app and earn your rewards. From free pot stickers and desserts to special bonus offers, it's our way of saying thanks for being awesome. You'll even be able to skip the line when you order ahead. It's the most delicious form of bribery. Download Noodles Rewards for free at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. All right, so I'm here with Zaina Syed, who is a news reporter, and we're going to talk a little bit about the race and ethnicity requirement. So recently, students have expressed disapproval for the requirement and how they're unhappy with what students come away with it. So Zaina... You've written quite a bit about this recently, and you have some more articles coming out soon. So could you tell us a little bit about what the race and ethnicity requirement and what it is? So the race and ethnicity requirement is a required course for all LSA students. Um, it came about in 1990 after student activists lobbied LSA administration. Um, and yeah, so every LSA student is required to take it, and I believe from the Ford School of Public Policy and the Stamp School of Art, um, and yeah. Mm -hmm. And LSNA as well, correct? LSA. Yeah. So what sort of things are taught in the class? So that's kind of been the debate. Um, a lot of activists who have complained about the watering down of the requirement want it to be more about cultural competency, but right now it's really just about like the construction of race and ethnicity and what they are and just understanding like the historical context behind them. So that's kind of like where conflict plays out, um, I would say. Mm -hmm. So what classes, for example, fulfill this requirement? Because I've read that there are some like pretty big entry-level classes that do fulfill them, right. correct? Right, so Anthropology 101, I believe, is the largest um, it's a really large class and it's the biggest 
class or the class that most people take to fulfill the requirement. Um, it's also a class that I know a lot of people have expressed complaints about um, in terms of how they address the race and ethnicity requirement. Um, but again, a huge part of the problem, um, if and, and there are like nuances to the problem, like if you even want to call it a problem too, um, which is coming out in my next story. But um, basically, the university has to, since it's a required course, the university has to offer, I believe, 6,000 seats for a race and ethnic, for race and ethnicity courses in the fall and 5,000 in the winter. And since Anthropology 101 takes up such a large portion of that, making it not a race and ethnicity course or changing the course would be extremely difficult on the bureaucratic end just because of the requirement, the required number of seats. Mm-hmm. So students are looking to make changes to the course. What sort of changes do they want to see implemented? Um, I think a lot of students just, they, they want to see more dialogue, number one, more discussion. Um, they also want to see people engaging with their own like racial, ethnic, sexuality, whatever, their own identities and relating it to the context of the world. Um, but again, that's more of a cultural competency requirement. That's that's something that w- when I talked to Associate Dean um, Angela Dillard, she said that's not what the requirement was really intended for. So that's kind of where the debate plays out. So earlier this week, I know that the opinion board actually put out a piece where they offered critiques of the classes and changes they would, wanted to make. And so some of the things that they listed were quote, a move towards smaller discussion-based classes rather than large lectures would be more conducive to having deep conversations truly centered around race and ethnicity, end quote. And so they offered the examples of History 101 and Anthropology 101 Mm -hmm. as classes where that really doesn't happen at all. So nonetheless, this isn't the first time this issue has been brought up. So Zaina, can you tell us just a little bit about what's happened in past years and what sort of changes have been made prior to this? Right, so in the late 1980s, um, I, th- I believe a universe, a student at the university made uh, a racist remark via radio um, and that like sparked this whole debate um, and the black action movement lobbied really hard for the race and ethnicity requirement and that came about in 1990. Um, and then in 2013, the Being Black at Michigan movement Um, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I know that there were tons of protests about how black students at the, at the university were treated. Um, and because of that, uh, Dean Martin commissioned a review, the race and ethnicity requirement. Um, and so all of that took place and then the review was officially commissioned in 2015. Um, and so that's like where a lot of the discussion centers. And now recently I know with like the blackface incident and, uh, like racist writing on the rock that like the race and ethnicity requirement is becoming another conversation point. Mm-hmm. So do you think that this class could be changed for next fall or do you think it'll take like a little bit longer than that? So since, okay. And then in 2015, 2016, this large like report was issued. It's really pretty comprehensive. Um, I believe like 
60% of students from like 34 different race and ethnicity courses, like 1900 students were interviewed about what they thought the course um, was meant to do and uh, just like pre and post tests of like what race, ethnicity, intersectionality, etc., is. Um, and so since then we have seen a little bit of progress according to um, Nicholas Fadinelli from the, he's the former president of the LSA student government. Um, and so one of the things that they tried to do now is make the race and ethnicity requirement more explicit and have professors explain the requirement. Um, in terms of if anything will happen next year, I know, according to the people I've talked to, it's a really slow moving process. They think that there'll be substantial change in three to four years, maybe. Um, will there be increased dialogue, like, throughout all race and ethnicity courses? I'm not sure. I, I think that would be very, very difficult to accomplish, given, like, the... the um, how large the requirement is. Um, but I think we're seeing like steps taken mm -hmm. to get towards there. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show yeah, this week. Thank I'm you. excited to see your next pieces about this. Stay tuned. Thanks, Colin. This week, the statement recognized seven students in its annual Student of the Year issue. Nominated by the university community, these students have shown leadership and poise as activists, innovators, and community builders. Also in news, last night, members of Students Allied for Freedom and Equality, a group that seeks social justice for the Palestinian community, demonstrated at a lecture by an Israeli diplomat. The lecture was meant to mark the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel, but protesters called the event insensitive in timing, pointing to the deaths of 17 Palestinian protesters who were killed in clashes with Israeli defense forces in Gaza two weeks ago. Also, on Monday night, sociology professor Sandy Levitsky, who received this year's Golden Apple Award, gave a lecture entitled Sociology and the Power of Optimism at the award ceremony. Thanks for tuning in this week. This episode of The Daily Weekly was produced by Ryan Cox and Avery Friedman. <laughs>